The year is 1917, and in the small town of Ypres, Belgium, 2,500 men will soon be the unwitting participants in a most unfortunate experiment. The damp and festering trenches are lined with soldiers in faded olive drab uniforms. Huddled together, they share what little rations they have. Their hope is waning. The anticipation of battle hangs thick in the air in this fall morning, and thunderstorms loom on the horizon. Moments later, a barrage of German howitzers rain 42-centimeter artillery shells at the beleaguered troops, but this time it is different. Numbing explosions are followed shortly thereafter by the unmistakable sound of gas venting from some sort of sinister and unseen vessel. The smell of garlic tickles the senses. It is an oddly pleasant harbinger of evil that teases these starving men. This olfactory anomaly is the perfume of the battlefield. It is mustard gas. Playfully yellow in color, heavy in appearance. A Crayola fog that hugs the ground, slowly crawling towards its victims. When the leading edge of the cloud's outstretched tendrils come in contact with the weary and terrified soldier, he clutches his throat, cries out for his mother, eyes bulging and bloodshot, mucus fills his lungs. All efforts are labored, slowed, blurred. Soon after, the crying and pleading subside, and his lifeless body slumps unceremoniously to the ground. The hand that had been desperately clutching a locket with a picture of his fiancée is the last of this soldier's appendages to abandon its post. The keepsake disappears into the mud, never to be looked upon again. End scene. <laughs> Thank you for indulging me in this over-the-top description I wrote describing how mustard gas kills you. I am not laughing because mustard gas is anything to joke about. In fact, it is a terrifying and horrible substance, which you will soon learn more about. I am laughing because, for some reason, every World War I movie I've ever seen portrays mustard gas as this instantaneous, choking, clawing, dramatic death. And I don't mean to disappoint you right out of the gate, but the way most movies depict mustard gas is grossly inaccurate. Generally, when they say mustard gas, they mean chlorine gas, which is very deadly and would make a great topic for another show, but not today. For a second, let me just back this train up and properly introduce the show. don't feel so good. You are listening to The Poison Cast, a podcast dedicated to explaining the deadly science behind toxins, venoms, and chemicals. My name is Scott Barnett. I am a PhD candidate in cell and molecular pharmacology and physiology at the University of Nevada School of Medicine. A while ago, I heard a great comment that the the longer your title, the less responsibility you have, and and that certainly holds true in this case. I'm a lab rat. I'm working on my PhD, and uh, one day I'll be done. So uh, it's been several weeks since our last episode, and I want to thank you for your patience if you're following the show in real time. If you are new to the show, I can tell you that I break down the podcast into two, two different parts here. We have a tier one that goes into the background of the poison and I explain how it gets inside you and how it wreaks havoc. Then there's also a tier two where I go into the real nitty gritty, i.e. the hardcore science behind the poison or the toxin we're going to talk about. The two tiers are separate in nature and if you don't care about the molecular biology or chemistry of what we're going to talk about, you're free to bow out after tier one. No heart feelings around here. As always, please rate us on iTunes. It really helps us get found by people uh, looking for this kind of show. And feel free to email us with suggestions for show topics. You can send those to info at thepoisoncast.com. Several wonderful and engaged listeners have done this already, and I really appreciate it. And I haven't forgotten about you. We will get to all of your suggestions eventually. So, tier one. 
mmm, mustard gas. If we do a little free word association with the words mustard and gas, I tend to think of hot dogs, to which I put the mustard on, beer, which I commonly drink with said mustard, and of course, the impending gas, which inevitably follows such indulgences. But mustard gas is none of these things. As with most things chemical in nature, mustard gas has many aliases, many different names. Uh, As Shakespeare says, a rose by another name would smell just as sweet, though. If you want to impress your friends at a party, you can let them know that mustard gas is also known as sulfur mustard. Bis-dichloroethyl sulfide, if you want to sound all fancy-like. Uh, Iprit, if you want to sound uh, pretentious or weird. Yellow cross liquid, distilled mustard, mustard tea mixture. <laughs> the term mustard gas itself is actually widely used, um, even though the fact that pure mustard gas is actually, doesn't have an odor at all. Impurities are common, though, and it gives off an odor of mustard or garlic or horseradish once, once you get those impurities in there. In fact, the active ingredient of garlic uh, it's called allicin, right? Uh, or aliacin. I don't know how you quite want to pronounce it. A-L-L-I-C-I-N, not like the name. And it looks exactly like mustard gas for the most part. It's pretty shocking here. Speaking of the molecule that is mustard gas, it is a straight and symmetric molecule with a sulfur in the middle, and then it branches out a bit and is capped on either side by chlorine molecules. It kind of looks like a spider clutching chlorine molecules in its anthropomorphized hands. There are a variety of other mustard agents out there, and they do similarly nasty things, and they tend to look very much like the mustard gas molecule, so we're not going to go in those today here. Now, mustard gas was first produced back in 1822, but the harmful effects of mustard gas were not uh, identified until 1860, which, to be honest, seems odd to me because if you've listened to some of my other podcasts, one of the things that chemists would often do back back in the olden days when they first discovered a new chemical was to taste it or smell it. I know it was a very it was a simpler time, right? And um, even though they knew it killed people back in 1860. Uh, This was a time when war consisted of men lining up in straight rows and brightly colored uniforms so that they could kill each other in an honorable way, as if there is a way to do that. So I'm guessing that loading cannonballs with poison gas hadn't quite creeped into their imagination yet. But if you fast forward a few decades, uh, you assassinate an archduke and, well, things change, right? On July 12, 1917, the first case of mustard gas use was uh, was was put forth by the Germans. They delivered artillery shells containing mustard gas in, in Ypres, Belgium, which I had mentioned at the beginning of the show here, and this ushered in the age of chemical warfare. There are more than 20,000 ca- casualties res- uh, that resulted from, from the use of mustard gas and different chemical warfare agents during, during, uh, during World War I. Sub- subsequently, mustard gas accounted for 80% of all chemical casualties during World War I. So it was ubiquitously used, and it's, it's probably the most famous use case, I should say, of mustard gas uh, throughout the world. Although, um, after World War One, it was so nasty and people hated it so much that it was prohibited for use in the Geneva Protocol of 1925. Despite this, though, uh, it had basically been used regularly over the decades in smaller conflicts. Uh, probably one of the more notable ones was the Iran-Iraq conflict from 1979 to 1988. Iraq used large quantities of chemical agents, including mustard gas. About 5,000 Iranian soldiers were reported to be killed, and um, about 20% of that was, was through mustard gas, so it was still being used. And as the world, just to reiterate that the good people of planet Earth 
do not want chemical weapons to be used or even around. The Chemical Weapons Convention of 1993 also prohibited the use, development, production, or stockpiling of these weapons here. So, so people are not fans of chemical weapons. And by the end of the show, you're probably going to know why here. So let me talk a bit about the chemical itself that we call mustard gas. Most of the poisons and toxins we've talked about in the past episodes of the Poison Cast have been highly specific in how they kill you. If you look at something like black mamba venom or botulism, uh, the botulinum toxin, these are like the sniper rifles of poisons. That is to say they target just the tiniest portion of one little bit of your neuron. They bind to it and render it inoperable. If you think of your cells as a bank fault, you know, most animal derived toxins are like the cat burglars. They uh, have a stethoscope. They go over to the lock of the vault. Uh, they listen to it, and then they are able to very gently get their way in and do, do uh, very specific limited damage here. Mustard gas is the guy who straps 12, a 12 pound block of C4 to the door and he just takes a few steps back and <laughs> lets it do what it's going to do there. To understand why a chemical like mustard gas is so deadly and nonspecific, while others, chemicals in your body in general are just so innocuous, we need to talk a little bit about electrons. In fact, almost all of chemistry at its root, when you really start looking at it, comes down to either the sharing or the stealing of electrons. Some atoms love to give away their electrons, some are very stingy and hold on to their electrons, and some love to take electrons from other atoms here. If you are a molecule that doesn't really like to give or take electrons, you're just content being yourself, chances are you're going to be a pretty re unreactive molecule. With mustard gas, though, we have chlorines and sulfur and based on the configuration of them within the molecule, mustard gas is like a swingers party when it comes to electrons. The reaction begins with the chlorine here, right? And remember, though, that you have chlorines capped on either side of this molecule here. The chlorine takes an electron from water, and this chlorine pops off the end of the mustard gas molecule, and this leaves a very, very reactive sulfur molecule now. Now, at this point, you have a modified mustard gas molecule. In chemistry, we call a modified uh, molecule of the sense, an intermediate. It's called an intermediate because it does not stay in this form for very long, like millions of a second. It's so reactive, it's just going to go to anything to work on it. And at this point, mustard gas is basically primed and, and ready for action once it becomes this intermediate. But let me hold on to that part for a minute and we'll get back to it. So just remember the mustard gas has been primed and it's ready to go. I want to go back and walk through that battlefield uh, scenario we talked about at the top of the show here. And we can discuss how mustard gas gets inside you, kills you, and why the movies ultimately get it wrong typically when it comes to mustard gas. So we're back in France. We're in Ypres, Belgium. The Germans have launched an artillery round with mustard gas, and the bomb explodes. We normally think of bombs as being designed to blow things up, right? And, of course, they're very good at this. But there's a particularly good reason why mustard gas should be put into these if you're interested in killing people. And... It makes for a perfect mustard gas delivery device when it comes down to it. Mustard gas is liquid at room temperature. And if we're trying to kill as many people as possible, we probably want to aerosolize this. When a bomb explodes, it is hot and it contains lots of pressure. This will force a lot of the mustard gas to aerosolize so that it can be inhaled into the lungs, which we'll get to as well, and travel a long distance as these little micro droplets to the air. There's a lot of heat in the explosion also, so, so a great deal of this mustard gas, as its namesake suggests, turns into a gas. So you have liquid droplets, 
and you have gas. The gas itself is four times heavier in air, so it settles very nicely onto the ground and creeps around for people to for it to get on their skin and breathe in and all, all the bad things you don't want to do. It is a combination of this liquid droplets and gas that make uh, mustard gas so deadly in the end. Unlike other poisons or toxins we've discussed, mustard gas can readily pass through your skin and into your bloodstream. This is really unique and is very deadly. Mustard gas also has a long half-life, so it can land on brushes or, or you know leaves or clothing, and it can stay active for many days long after the odor is dissipated, so you don't even know anything bad is around. So it's an interesting question. I actually had someone email me this and, and ask me to cover this. How does something like mustard gas pass through your skin while something like snake venom cannot? It really comes down to a term called hydrophobicity. If that term means nothing to you, just think of oil and water. Your skin consists of a matrix of proteins like collagen and fibronectin, and this tight lattice of molecules is very good at repelling all things that, that, uh, that would normally dissolve into water. Oils, on the other hand, um, can absorb readily into the skin. And if you are the right type of shape of molecule and you have the right chemical composition, uh, it, can it can continue through your skin and it can go right into your bloodstream. Now, I'd mentioned earlier that there, uh, that the ingredient in the active ingredient in garlic that gives it its odor, allicin, is structurally similar to mustard gas. And if you've ever gorged on a large Italian meal with lots of garlic and onion, you know that the next day that smell will start emanating from your pores. It's kind of going both ways here. It's a very, very structurally similar molecule and, and it easily works its way through, through, through your pores there. Okay, so back to the deadly nature of mustard gas. Mustard gas are what are called vesicants and these are blistering agents. And this will be the first sign to you that, that you've received a large dose of the poison if you start getting these blisters. 10 to 50% of the mustard gas that, that, that you come in contact with are actually going to bind to your skin. The first sign that you actually have mustard gas poisoning is through something called arrhythmia. Uh, and this is redness of your skin. And this is followed by that vesication, which is the blistering, as well as necrosis of the epidermal basal uh, keratinocytes. Uh, excuse me. These are your the cells that make your skin cells, right? And it takes as little as 10 micrograms of the mustard poison to actually cause these blisterings in your skin. 10 micrograms is, oh, about one hundredth the size of a grain of salt. So um, not a lot. This will begin to happen one to four hours after your exposure, right? Not in seconds like in the movie says. And, and to add insult to injury, these blisters, they tend to concentrate in warm, moist areas such as your groin or your armpits. <laughs> they're also painful and they're filled with a yellowy, pussy substance. So, uh, so go team there, right? And it's not just your skin that gets involved with when you're, when you're exposed to mustard gas. Your, your lungs don't fare much better. Severe inhalation exposure leads to damage in the membrane in your lungs that allows you to exchange oxygen and CO2. So you slowly suffocate to death, and this can kill you as little as 24 hours if you get a strong acute dose of the um, of the poison here, not minutes. Um, if there's any good news to the story, it's generally that about 50% of only about 50% of the, the the mustard gas gets into your blood, and it has the added benefit that it's highly gets very diluted within your blood. The stuff that does get through. So, so in case you're wondering though, that's that's where the good news ends. It, it just gets worse from here. Once in your blood, it readily travels to your GI tract where it causes mucosal necrosis and hemorrhage. So it's killing the cells in your your intestinal lining, and the necrosis means it's becoming rotten. Um, 
I love this though. The it says if you get high GI tract uh, uh, infiltration of, of mustard gas, and this is a quote from the literature. High dose exposure imply a poor prognosis. It means you're going to die if you get a whole bunch. Um, it also kills your white blood cells. This is important because you probably want to fight off the infection that is be almost guaranteed to get from those blisters you're getting all over your skin. It also has neurologic effects. It can cause chronic pain. Yada yada yada. This is not going to be fun. So back to the kind of molecular biology here. Why why is it so damaging to your cells, right? What is it doing? Well, remember I said that this is a hydrophobic molecule. That is, it's more like oil than water. When your cell membrane, uh, your excuse me, your cell membrane is also made up of these similar fats and cholesterols. So when the mustard gas is around. It just goes right on through your cell wall. Your cell is normally very good at keeping certain things out, but this is very similar to your cell wall composition, so it just goes right on through. Think of a lava lamp. When when the mustard gas touches the cell wall of any cell, it just melts right on through the surface and it gets to the center. Now, once it's in the center of your cell, the real fun begins. Some of that highly reactive mustard gas will find its way to the nucleus of your cell. Once inside the nucleus, it it gets to work and does what it's going to do. Remember that your DNA is made up of just four different building blocks, A, T, C, and G. The G stands for guanine, and it is really the target of that highly reactive intermediate we were talking about earlier on in the show. Fun fact, uh, guanine from A, T, C, and G uh, is derived from the Spanish word guano, as in bat guano or poop. Uh, it's also in, a, in some fish scales. It's in very high concentrations, and it's used in lots of cosmetic products and even shampoos. It gives kind of this nice sheen or luster to it. So, uh, so back to the mustard gas. This highly reactive mustard gas intermediate that we were talking about earlier, the one that's already been prepped, and it's kind of like a cocked gun, and it's ready to go. What it does is it permanently binds to those guanines of the your DNA, your ATC and Gs, and this has some consequences you might expect. The simple explanation is that it prevents your DNA from replicating. It does a lot of other things, but this is one of the main things. If this sounds bad, well, it is. If your DNA can't replicate, then it can't divide. And if your cells can't divide, they're going to die. This binding of the mustard gas to your DNA is called alkylation. And if you want to know just how potent and how much havoc can cause, some chemotherapies use alkylating agents that they're not mustard gas, but they do the same thing to your DNA to kill the cancer cells. In the case of mustard gas, even especially in high doses here, uh, the mustard gas goes into all of the cells of your body. And well, as you can imagine, this is less than desirable if you want to keep on living. With this in mind, we can also answer the question as to why it takes several hours for any symptoms to surface. A lot of poisons will act immediately, and, and as in the movie show, you're going to die very, very quickly. Not the case with mustard gas. It happens because when your DNA is damaged, it takes a while for the cell to send up the proverbial white flag and admit it's been defeated. This is known as apoptosis, or programmed cell death. And it happens when your cell realizes that something has gone horribly wrong with itself and in a moment of kind of an altruistic self-sacrifice and an effort to save the rest of your normally functioning cells from whatever may be going wrong with it, and it doesn't want to spread that around, the cell decides to kill itself. 
And just like Ripley and Aliens, if you've seen the show, the movie, uh, when she decided to blow up the Acheron LV-426, the, the planet with all the, the aliens, nerd alert, uh, it takes a while to initiate and complete this process. She had to go through a whole series of things to confirm she actually wanted to blow up the planet. Your cells go through a similar process. It's not that easy to set off the apoptosis alarm and for it to kill itself. It, it, there are several steps involved, and, and well, it takes many hours for those cells to start dying. Now, if you think that mustard gas only attacks the DNA, you would be wrong, and you'd be wrong because I didn't explain it to you, <laughs> not that you should know. It also pummels a whole bunch of other important regulatory molecules in your body, and if you're lucky enough to survive a large dose of mustard gas, you get to spend the rest of your life wondering if you're going to get cancer because the way it damages your cells, the way it damages these other molecules, it increases your rate of cancer uh, later on in life. So go team for that, right? And it is also a highly toxic substance. So we in our other in each show, I like to tell you a little bit about just how toxic the one chemical is. In the botulinum X episode, we mentioned how uh, one grain of salt worth of botulinum would kill hundred people it's an absolutely by far the most dangerous chemical on the planet as far as concentration um, but the way we measure toxicity with gases is a little bit different so it, with a normal chemical we call that the LD50 lethal dose 50% and it's how much you'd have to ingest to kill you with um, with uh, the toxicology of of gases we normally call it the LCT 50 that's a lethal concentration over time 50% and it normally mentions or normally is relevant to the incapacitation of the person rather than death so it's kind of apples and oranges a little bit here but to give you a similar comparison the LCT 50 of um, of carbon monoxide is about 4,000 parts per million for one hour exposure, right? So you need about 4,000 parts per million in the air for over an hour, and then you become incapacitated. For mustard gas, you need 30 parts per million uh, for just 30 minutes, and then you become completely incapacitated. As a matter of fact, you only need one part per million to blister your skin. That is how how deadly it is on the surface here. So uh, 4,000 parts per million versus 30 parts per million. And carbon monoxide is a very dangerous, deadly chemical. It doesn't take a lot to hurt you. So as far as general toxicity, yes, mustard gas is a pretty, pretty nasty thing. Now, if you get exposed to it, you're probably thinking, well, geez, what treatment options do I have? Um, well, as with a lot of things, the 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 only way, or I should say, with pregnancy, you're uh, the only way not to guarantee you're going to get pregnant is through abstinence, and it's pretty much the same thing here with mustard gas. Not a lot of good can happen. Uh, if you have a charcoal filter, if you've got a good chemical mask, it's actually very decent at removing the mustard gas, and you you should be fine if you've got a good seal there and a and a, and a good the right filter. Um, I'm saying all this because if once it gets in you, there's not a lot we can do here. They can give you atropine, which is uh, just reduces your gastrointestinal hyperactivity, i.e., you don't crap yourself. Um, they can also give you like they can give you narcotic uh, analgesics, which um, just make you feel better. But none of them are going to stop the damaging effects of the mustard gas, which it gets in you. So, at the end of the day, not a lot you can do. Good luck with that. Mustard gas is a really nasty chemical. It was so bad that during World War I, uh, the stories that came back and, and the blistering, the horrible, horrible blistering that happened on these soldiers, that 
the whole world decided they didn't want to do it anymore. In 1925, as I said earlier on, they basically said, no more of this. This is not the way we want. We're, we're fine killing each other, but just not this way. That's how bad this chemical was here. And at the end of the day, if you if you look at how it's affecting you, it, it's like billions of microscopic firecrackers going off in your cells, and it's damaging in a very intense manner across your whole body here. And as human beings, we have incredible imaginations, and we generally use that, use that to do really positive, amazing things. And occasionally, that creativeness leads to some very unfortunate side effects. And, and it's just like nuclear weapons, I think with chemical weapons, a majority of the population would probably th- go back and say if we could never come up with this, that would be a much better planet. But uh, hey, say la vie, you got to take the good with the bad, I suppose. So with that, we're going to put a bow on tier one. I hope you enjoyed it. Again, send suggestions to info at thepoisoncast.com. Rate me on iTunes. Um, if you just want to say hi, you can shoot an email too. There's no harm or foul in that. In any case, we are going to move on to the heavy-duty hardcore science of mustard gas at this point, also known as tier two. As we talked about briefly at the beginning of the show, mustard gas is part of a larger family of mustard agents, as they're called. If you want to visualize this again, you essentially have a sulfur that is flanked by an ethyl group on either side, so two saturated carbons, so sulfur, carbon, carbon, same going out both ways, and then it's flanked at the very end by chlorines. It's a nice symmetrical molecule there. And um, they've done variations on this theme with uh, substituting the ethyl groups for propyl and butyl groups, and they found that these are also somewhat effective as mustard agents. As I mentioned before, the active ingredient in the smell of mustard and garlic and horseradish is allicin, uh, which is structurally similar to Mustard gas, very close. It's actually very interesting, and you should definitely look these two up. Uh, what a difference an oxygen and a couple double bonds can make, but there's a lot of similarities there. And um, if you did not know this, the mustard family also includes like uh, tributylamine, dibutyl sulfide, and uh, you've probably heard of sarin gas. Uh, although structurally, it does not look that similar. I don't know why it technically falls into the mustard family, but hey, I don't make these things. Organic chemists, they have their own, they play by their own rules. <laughs> is almost completely insoluble in water, 0.068% at STP, so uh, that's really not going to happen. And its half-life when, it isn't, when it's dissolved in a fat and put into an aqueous solution is only five minutes. So that's good news that if this gets I, – I was reading um, uh, literature about how, how fishermen were concerned because not just the U.S. but Sweden and a whole bunch of countries, the way they used to deal with chemical agents, and they're like, you know, we really don't want these around anymore. They're pretty deadly. They would just run out and – toss them in the ocean in giant 55-gallon barrels and say, well, there goes that. I'm sure, you know, the solution to pollution is dilution, so everything's going to be fine. And fishermen in Sweden were reporting issues of coming in contact with mustard gas that had been under the ocean for years in these 55-gallon drums. Now, the half-life is quite a bit longer when it's in its native state, but I can't imagine 10, 15, 20 years that that uh, it would still be an active chemical. But yet it is, and it's been reported. So uh, another interesting thing about this is that this melting point is 58 degrees Fahrenheit. So if you are trying to kill people with mustard gas in cold weather, if you're a government and you're fighting mountain warfare or something, it's not very good at that because it really stays in a, um, a solid state. What their solution was is they mix it with leucite, which is another poison gas, and this raises the the melting point. So go team. <laughs> Way to be inventive, killers. Um 
It's viscous liquid at room temperatures. It's colors, colorless if pure, and it actually is odorless if completely pure, but it very quickly turns into a pale yellow form, even dark brown if it's really impure. And what's interesting about this, for especially if you're going to make it and put it into a bomb, it is uh, its boiling point is 218 degrees Celsius or 424 degrees. Uh, or I should not say boiling point. It decomposes at 424 degrees Fahrenheit. So you need some sort of shielding. Explosions have incredibly high amounts of heat for a very, very brief period of time, as well as the overpressurization. But that's probably less of a concern for a simple chemical like this. And, um, and so you need to shield it a little bit so that you don't decompose all of your gas before it gets to its target. So... Um, in the wider sense, I should say that this whole compound, this group of, of, of mustard agents have this similar structure where you have um, a sulfur or a nitrogen in the middle. You have the ethyl group followed by some sort of very reactive external compound like or uh, atom like a, a chlorine or something like that. And the X uh, in this case is the leaving group and the B is the Lewis base. And these all come together to form this mustard group here. Now, we, we really talked a little bit, of just not that much about the LD50, the LCT50s here, and it falls into two groups, skin contact versus inhalation, right? Because this is the, the, the two methods you're going to do it. Now, skin contact, it is insanely potent. We'd mentioned it is one part per million for a 30-minute exposure, and, uh, um, and you're going to have blistering in the skin. I mean, that's a very, very low concentration here. Breathing it in is is really equally as bad. Uh, and this is if you're going to die from this, chances are it's because you've inhaled aerosolized form. Thirty parts per million for thirty minutes is enough to get you. And um, and this is. Uh, such a low concentration, you wouldn't be able to detect it by smelling. And uh, if there's, if it's latent in the environment, it's very easy to be walking through and get a very high dose because it's not immediately obvious that you've been exposed to this here. Um, if, as far as actual, rather than parts per million, you need 0 0.02 milligrams on your skin to cause a blister, which is 200 micrograms. I mean, this is, you know, grain of salt sort of stuff. So, so very, very, very little. But the method of action, this is re really fascinates me as a pharmacologist here. The toxic effects of mustard agent depend really on its ability to covalently bind to other substances here. So it's a permanent uh, binding to the substance. So that chlorine I, uh, atom that, that, that is on either side of it, it will basically be popped off of that ethyl group and the mustard agent is transferred into this very reactive sulfonium ion. As a matter of fact, it forms a very highly strained tertiary ring with a sulfonium ion and it needs to react with something. This really reactive sulfonium ion combined to a whole target of different things here. Uh, really, anything that's a nucleophile, you know, such as a nitrogen, and um, and as well as uh, as nu nu nucleic acids, which really we talked about in the first half here. Uh, with on top of that, so you've got. Um, Nitrogens, because it's reacting with nucleophiles, it reacts with uh, with uh, uh, glutamine or uh, ATCG guanines. Jeez, <laughs> where's my brain? Uh, reacts with the guanines, and it also really loves to to uh, to work with uh, or to bind to thiol groups in protein peptides here, and that's cysteine and methionine. They have the SH groups on there, right? Methionine is every single protein out there. It's the first amino acid, and cysteines are extremely common. And if you remember, cysteines have disulfide bridges. They form these disulfide bridges, which are really important tertiary structural components for most proteins. So if it's if it's interacting with that, not only do you have this uh, this this 
alkylated addition, but you're 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 preventing the proper folding of these proteins, and, and that's probably going to render them uh, useless here, which is probably not a good thing here, right? <laughs> they can also destroy large number of uh, different substances in the cell by this general means of alkylation. Um, and then, so this is, they're, they're, like I said before, they're like little firecrackers in your cells when they go off here. And this, um, uh, we mentioned it goes into program cell death, apoptosis, um, and that's a problem. And they can also lead to, to cancer. So yes, we've already gone over that. They also bind to glutathione's which are really, really important in the cell. There's actually something we study a bit in our cells. They're free radical scavengers, and people think that this might lead to the increased rate of cancer because the glutathione's are basically being clogged up by these things. You get loss of calcium homeostasis. You get lipid peroxidation, cellular membrane breakdown, and, and the cell just loses control, and it's going to completely die at that point. Now, interestingly, one of the things I came across, there was, uh, there was an, actually a case where someone spilled, a, they didn't say how much, but they said a large amount of mustard gas on the skin, and they got a Im nearly immediate severe chemical burn that by that, I mean, we know that it takes a little while, but maybe less than an hour, and 95% of their body was covered in these burns, right? Uh, this person was in really bad shape. There was pharyngeal pain. There was bad cough. There was husky voice. Because remember, a lot of this is going to be inhaled if it's being poured all over your skin. And um, 17 days later is where the real tr uh, trouble came into play here. There was uh, 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 dyspnea, which is disordered breathing. There was respiratory distress. There's heavy blood in the sputum. There was raunchy, um, Ronchi, excuse me, R-H-O-N-C-H-I, not like something that's gross, although it was gross. This is a coarse rattling in the throat when you're breathing. Then they did an x-ray, and they found that the person had a collapsed lung. Uh, there were shadows in the lungs. They did a tracheoscope examination, and they found edema. There was a false membrane formation, and his lung linings were sloughing off. Uh, it goes on and on, and this probably comes as no surprise to you. He died the very same day uh, as the onset of those really intense systems. But it still took 17 days. People always think this is an instant death here, uh, like a sarin gas or, or even a chlorine, uh, a high exposure to chlorine gas. But it's not. It takes it takes some time here. Um, so we talked about the, the carcinogenic effects. It also has mutagenic effects. And uh, what's interesting is that, so back in 2007, a study was done, and they showed that there are dramatic increases in the levels of lipid peroxidation uh, including, this is important, inducible nitric oxide synthases, which um, which are a problem here. So in other words, what they're saying is that the mustard induces both oxidative and nitrosative stress. And there was a review done in 2006, and they basically proposed that this pathogenesis caused by the mustard gas goes through three steps. One is the mustard bonds to target cell surface receptors. Um, it then activates the intracellular reactive oxygen species, ROSs, and then as well as the RNSs, the reactive nitrogen species. And this leads to this peroxynitrite formation. And peroxynitrite formation is a um, uh, is is going to cause a whole bunch of downstream uh, negative consequences of that. You get a lot of uh, damage uh, to your system from there. Um, there was also a study in the Iranian uh, war victims, and this is more recent, and I find this this part to be really interesting because this makes a lot of sense here. And they looked at the chronic effects because remember one of the larger doses people got in recent years was from this Iraq-Iranian war, and they got large, large doses of mustard gas. 
and they found there was a significant linkage between the progress of these respiratory diseases people get with it because you get extreme respiratory damage uh, and the cytokine chemokine expression, right? They looked at 126 different people and they found huge increases in expressions of all kinds of cytokines and chemokines here. And if you remember, chemokines and cytokines are very important moderators of inflammation. They had lots of extra TGFB1, that's transforming growth factor in the uh, ball fluid, the bronchial uh, alveolar lavage. If you if you put some, this is in rats. This this second part of the test is if you you can put some fluid in the lung, you can pull it out. You can see what the components are, and if there's lots of these chemokines and cytokines, it's suggesting there's some sort of inflammatory disease going on here. And they found lots of that. That was bad here. Uh, there was also a lot of interfering gammon. And um, the good news, if there is one to this, is that uh, having excess chemokine and cytokines in some cases can be treated with different therapeutics to bring those levels down and release or minimize the amount of inflammation and um, that you deal with. And, and that will at least alleviate symptoms at least. And uh, inflammation is associated with a whole host of diseases. I mean, like almost all of them, it's amazing. And so if you can bring down the amount of inflammation, you're, you're definitely going to help mitigate some of the problems there. So um, that's all. I'm, I'm, it's actually a pretty short tier two today. Um, a lot of chemistry. I, I'm, not, I'm not a chemist, so maybe that's why I didn't go into it. <laughs> <laughs> that much but in any case uh love your suggestions you've heard all the stuff so please write us if you have any questions you want me to talk about anything you guys are all amazing for listening especially if you've gotten to the end of tier two that means you're a uh, a true science nerd and um, you are close to my heart in any case we will see you guys on the next episode i'm not quite sure when it's going to be maybe a couple weeks and we'll go from there boom